You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. My life according to you. So I was born and was small for ages, and then suddenly a cardboard box appeared with two furry black ears sticking out of it. It made me nervous, but I was brave and gave it a bell to play with, and then out it jumped and loved me. It was my cat. I called it Morris Morrissey. It matched my mother's Morris Minor. For the next bit, I was a teenager and then I grew up. I had a flat in Dublin and a boyfriend. He was a vet. Little bed, little kitchen, little towel rack, lots of little cups and saucers. And then off he went to Africa. He sent me pictures of giraffes and of the second tallest waterfall in the world. When he got back, he wasn't my friend anymore. I cried for a week. I was also at university, a bigger place in school with bigger chairs and desks. And when it finished, I found a suitcase. It was red with purple flowers. It had a scarf around the handle. I put in everything I needed, socks and a jotter and snacks, and took a plane across the ocean to Japan to visit Godzilla, where it was summer and boiling hot and the people all kept wind chimes to make it cooler and rode bicycles to the shops and at the same time held up umbrellas though it wasn't even raining and when I met a man in a bright white classroom the darkest parts of our eyes turned into swirls then question marks then hearts so we got married and went hippity hoppity splat a mountain a lake a desert we bought a house a tiny one at first and then a massive one a baby knocked at the door one night but didn't come in and then another baby came he cried a lot we thought he had a tummy ache We gave him a bath in a bucket. He was just lonely for his sister to come and keep him company. But you were still floating about in space inside your bubble egg. It had accessories. A switch for going sideways. A switch for going upside down or faster. It was a cross between a sparkly green and a sparkly silver. The moon was very annoying. And then whenever we'd all been bored on our own for long enough, down you came on a path of lightning to finish off the family. You were born on the living room floor at three in the morning in front of the trampoline sofa and I heard them say a girl and sat up straight away we were both pretty and I opened out my arms and that's it really when you grow up I'm going to be so busy taking you to the house shop waiting by the playground gates to bring your children swimming I won't be any different I'll keep your room exactly as it is for you to visit. Bric-a-brac collection on the shelf, the bed your father built. The letters of your name in neon appearing on the ceiling when it's time. Welcome to the latest episode in the Scottish Porch Library's podcast series. And what a treat it is. Back in August, we were delighted to welcome to the SPL Sinead Morrissey. She is the winner of the 2014 T.S. Eliot Prize and last week her name was announced as the winner of the 2017 Forward Prize. So it was a rare honour to talk to her about her new collection On Balance, which is published by Carcanet and can, if you want, be bought online or in person from the SPL. Just saying. Sinead is originally from Northern Ireland, ported down in County Armagh to be exact. At the age of 18, she won the Patrick Kavanagh Poetry Award, an early indicator of future success, I think, and she's worked with schools, charities, prisoners, and while laureate of Belfast, she met the Queen. Currently, she's living in Northumberland and working in the creative writing department at the University of Newcastle. 
She was in Edinburgh in August for an appearance at the Book Festival, and we were delighted when she found time to pop down to the SPL for a chat about On Balance. I should say, for reasons beyond my control, the noise coming from outside the SPL that day was quite something, probably because it was Edinburgh Festival time. So I've edited out most of the sirens, kids shouting, and other pieces of noise pollution, but perhaps not all. Apologies. Anyway, enough of my yakking. On with the show. Sinead, I, I like how you start the collection, you launch the collection uh, with a poem about the launch of the Titanic. Mm, yeah. Um, were you tempting fate? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose it's a dramatic beginning and a kind of birth um, at the start of the book. Uh, and I didn't. it didn't ever occur to me I was tempting fate. Uh, so. Does the Titanic have a sort of totemic... Um, feeling in, in, in Belfast is that a big thing there part woven into people's memories and, and history of the area yeah I think it's huge um, and there was nothing to market uh, all the time I was there growing up um, they had like a single rusted gantry and they'd point, it, point at it and say this is where the Titanic was built and then they built this fantastic signature building they didn't do it at all and then they did it very well I think mm. Another thing that you can visit is the dry dock, and that's uh, after the Titanic was launched. The shell of it was launched into the waters of Belfast Lock, and then it was tugged round to the dry dock, which I think was the biggest dry dock in Europe at the time, and the reason why the Titanic was built in Belfast. And you can actually walk on the floor, like walking on the seabed of the dry dock. And that is one of the most haunted and evocative spaces in the city. You get that gives you, I think, a sense of the size of the ship more than anything else I've ever seen. Yeah, in some senses, the absence might be more powerful than yeah the old wreck itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is the hole in which it was built, and this is the hole which it left behind. Mm. You know, it's such an extraordinary story. So. Shall we hear this poem? Sure. We'll, we'll launch this podcast. We'll launch the podcast. Okay. <laughs> So the title of this poem is um, The Millihelen, and it's a fanciful, a millihelen is a fanciful unit of measurement. Um, so if Helen was the face that launched a thousand ships, a millihelen is the amount of physical beauty required to launch a single ship. The Millihelen. It never looks warm or properly daytime in black and white photographs, the sheer cliff face of the ship still enveloped in its scaffolding, backside against the launching cradle. Ladies lining the quay in their layered drapery, touching their gloves to their lips, and just as they that go down to the sea in ships, rises from choir boys' mouths in wisps and snatches, and evil skitters off and looks askance for now. A switch is flicked at a distance and the moment swollen with catgut about to snap with ice picks, hawk's wings, pine needles, eggshells, bursts and it starts. Grandstand of iron palace of rivets starts moving, starts slippery sliding down slow as a snail at first in its viscous passage, taking on slither and speed, gathering in the atlas capable weight of its own momentum, tonnage of grease beneath to get it waterborne, tallow, soft soap, train oil, a rendered whale, this last the only Millihelen, her beauty slathered all over the slipway. Faster than a boy with a ticket in his pocket might run alongside it, the bright sheet of the lock advancing faster than a tram. 
Heavy chains and anchors kicking in lest it outdoes itself, straining up to a riot of squeals and sparks, lest it capsizes before its beginning, lest it drenches the aldermen. And the ship sits back in the sea as though it were ordinary and wobbles ever so slightly. And then it and the sun-splash tilted hills, the railings, the pinstriped awning, in fact everything regains its equilibrium. It's interesting um, to have a poem of the Titanic because it, it sets this, the tone, I guess, for the collection. And there's, there's quite a few poems that just deal with engineering. Yes. I'm sort of mathematically completely ignorant um, and scientifically pretty ignorant too, but uh, there's something breathtaking about feats of engineering. That internal sort of architecture that keeps things up when they shouldn't really be held up is something that really fascinates me. And I think there's a great equivalence with poetry because of its own internal architecture of poetic form as if it's working properly as a kind of conduit for buoyancy and lift and surprise. So it's it, the book is really a homage to those kind of structures in the physical world, but always as a correlative to poetic form itself, I think. One of the really interesting characters that comes out of that, uh, who I didn't know anything about, was Lillian Bland. Mm. Would you like to talk about who Lillian Bland was? Yeah, so Lillian Bland was a woman uh, from the land of class, in in the north of Ireland in the Edwardian time. Her father was unusual in that he educated her and uh, she had great ideas of her own capabilities. So she became a black belt in jiu-jitsu. She was the first woman in the world to take colour photographs of seabirds. And she would sail from County Antrim to Scottish islands and take these coloured photographs of seabirds. She tried to join the Grand National as a jockey. They wouldn't let her because she was a woman. And then when Louis Blériot successfully flew his plane um, across the Channel and claimed his £1,000 prize from the Daily Mail, she was so enthused by powered flight uh, that she wrote Blériot a letter and asked him if he would take her up as a passenger in his plane. And he said, no, because you're a woman. So her response to that was to design, build and fly her own aeroplane. As you do. As you do. (laughs) And she did it successfully in 1910. And it didn't fly very far and it didn't fly very high, but the fact that it flew at all is quite something. And she's been forgotten. She has been forgotten. She has one of the most ironic surnames, I think, of anyone, because she was anything but bland. And I hadn't heard of her. There's a a park in Glengormley which has a replica of her plane, the Mayfly, for children to climb on. And it's called the Lillian Bland Park. And my husband was at a dental appointment with the kids and he took them, took them to the park and he found this. And he came home and he asked me if I'd heard of Lillian Bland and I hadn't. Mm. So then I found out a little bit more about her and discovered a new hero. Yes. Mm. This is a poem about her uh, building on, and flying of her own airplane, which was the Mayfly. The Mayfly, in memoriam Lillian Bland. 1878-1971 Conspicuously mischristened, what chink in the general atmosphere, what sudden lift of bones and breath allowed you to stand up straight in mechanics' overalls, skirts are out of the question, and plot your escape route into the sky. 
like the right foot of Louis Blériot trapped beside one of his overheating engines, like the umpteen previous biplane extravaganzas that had left the grand gadzooks for a couple of minutes, only to wobble uncontrollably in recalcitrant space and then nosedive. Everything flared white-hot for you until it abruptly ended. Jiu-jitsu, shooting, horse racing, spending days on remote Scottish islands photographing seabirds. You donned your Donegal cap. The natives, I hear, thought one of the mills had blown up, but put it down to a thunderstorm. And tapped your cigarette ash all over Edwardian decorum. If Blerio wouldn't let you near his channel-hopping aeroplane, you'd begged him in a letter to crown you as his passenger. You'd build and fly your own. The unflexed, held-aloft wingspan of gulls in flight was where you started, in the Tobercurran workshop, your gardener's son assistant holding your tools and worshipping you from a distance. I enclose two photos of my biplane, the Mayfly. She is the first biplane to be made in Ireland. Skids of ash, ribs and stanchions of spruce, bamboo outriggers taut beneath unbleached calico, more grasshopper than aircraft. You ran the finished Mayfly, may not fly, still missing its engine and airy as a climbing frame, off the top of Carnmoney Hill, Belfast smouldering under its furnaces, the lock a phlegmatic eye, casually watching, and hung as a counterweight for six-foot volunteers from the Irish constabulary, who saw the ground ripped clear of their feet in an upward gust and were trailed alarmingly over heads of astonished livestock before dropping off. In the movie of your life they haven't scripted yet, all bets are on from this moment. It is quite a new sensation being charged by an aeroplane. A horizontally opposed two-cylinder engine with the help of a whiskey bottle and an ear trumpet gets fitted next, and Lord O'Neill of Randallstown Park, so struck by your exploits, offers up his level acreage as a refuge and launching point. The engine is beautifully balanced, but all the same the vibration is enormous. The nuts dance themselves loose. Hooked all your life on barter, a glider for an aeroplane, an aeroplane for a motor car, England for Ireland, Ireland for Canada. You knew this was the single most inflammable exchange you'd ever risk. The lone bull standing slack under Hawthorne at the edge of the field, quick chatter and flash from the hedgerow, enough of a canopy of willowy light to finally allow admittance and saw, as you climbed up to your tilted seat and got those improbable Victorian pram wheels started, a straggle of farmhands and scullery maids politely assembled, all wishing you skywards. Once it was finished, you ran back over and over to the proof it had happened, the tracks of her passage in the spangled grass, and then there, absence, your footprint missing on earth for the span of a furlong, as if a giant had lifted its boot and then set it down. 
One of the things I think poetry is really great at is reclaiming people from historical oblivion. Mm. There must be uh, an encyclopedia's worth of people <laughs> that I would never have heard of if yeah. I didn't read poetry. Yeah. And you've got a really interesting poem called um, Receiving the Dead. Yes. By Marconi. And his yes. Well, why don't you say it around me? So a lot of this is happening around the Edwardian era. Um, and I, I, I don't know why I'm so fascinated by the Edwardian era. But um, So we've had the Miller Helen and the Mayfly, and this is another... This is another sort of great invention of that time, but um, a friend of mine told me that when Marconi invented the radio, he switched on the receiver without having switched on a transmitter. All by itself, the receiver filled with voices, which Marconi was convinced were the voices of the dead. Well, naturally you'd conclude that, wouldn't yeah. um, And Edison believed in um, this new kind of sonic technology as as being a perfect mechanism for capturing the voices of those who have gone into another world. And that idea, I just thought that was so fantastic. Uh, so I've written a poem, which is about this idea of early radio allowing us access to, to the voices of the departed. I've constructed the poem as an address from Sherlock Holmes to Dr Watson, mostly just for fun but also because Arthur Conan Doyle was such a convinced spiritualist. Yes, and I think the first thing that was ever said on a, on a telephone call was, uh, Watson, is that you? Or? I did not know that. Yeah, no, I thought that was what you were referencing. Yeah, no, I didn't know that, actually. That's no, fantastic. the first ever message was, Watson, come here. That's okay. what it was. Okay. I think Alexander Bell's assistant was called Watson, so there you go. Oh, there you go. Receiving the Dead for Jimmy McAlevey. One. Elementary, Watson, that the dead are legion, eager to speak and awaiting a wireless telegraph system to usher them in, that the pain of aeons is galvanising. Bats chittering inside a cave's auditorium or a thousand starlings amplifying evening over the sodden docks that sounds like this might issue forth as soon as he flicks the switch should not be shocking. Receiver without transmitter, plugging itself into the disturbed nest of the afterworld where everyone's still at home. This amber lacquered box contains within its frame the fits and shredded ectoplasm of our own dear century in a 20th century form and bids all the dead Welcome. Listen. To acquire fire. You are being watched, my little Friedel. The door jam jammed and undulating, the discarnate jostling for position at the microphone. Tell Daddy I'm the keys in your blue coat pocket. Salah, can't you remember? Giggles ascending their scales, then stopping, weeping, warnings. A war is singing. All she gets from the ice man is ice. Whinging, you fucking knew I never meant to. Christ, diaphanous acoustic entry point, clogged and venomous, or worse, tedious, rain followed by snow. 
Let downs and come-ons, a baby who can't yet speak, unleashing a caterwaul, instructions, overhaul. I'm sorry, not nearly as often as you'd think, and believe me, more often. Three. To picture them, Watson, the only way we know how, as Lazarus, say, pitched up on the other side for the second time in the coat of his own rot but human, or the worst of them pinned to their isolate stations, islands in a lake, sheeted white and penancing, then hearing the click, the chink made actual, the beckoning, to see them come running, the boys and girls and men and women, their bare feet flashing, is to err extravagantly. It must be. In the distances between Signal Hill and Rathlin, between the curved horizon of Earth and the ionosphere, they have become pure air, pure interruption, a disturbance like a storm further down the line, undressed by electromagnetism. But wholly literate, they are equivalent to language in its given state. We were saying earlier, you were comparing poetry to engineering. Uh, I guess you could compare being a poet to being a radio, picking up voices. Yeah, 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 all that sense of channeling. and Sometimes of the dead as well, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. Um, there's Norman Mailer called writing the spooky art, mm. uh, and I guess there's something, if you really get down to it, a little bit spooky about writing, mm. spending all that time trying to inhabit different mental states. Yeah, and different voices of people who are not you. Yeah. yeah. Moving on from spooky stuff, the title poem, On Balance, mm. unless I really read it wrongly, um, this is about Philip Larkin or about sexism. This is specifically taking on um, a poem by Philip Larkin called Born Yesterday, uh, which he wrote as a cradle song and intended as a compliment to Sally Amos when she was born. Uh, and uh, I think it's a horrendous poem <laughs> in which his, you know, his highest wish for this baby girl is that she be ordinary and dull and that she not have extremes of talent or beauty or um, energy. And I think if uh, he'd been asked to write a cradle song for Sally's brother, Martin, it would not have been... Um, it wouldn't have uh, articulated those kind of desires for a baby boy. So um, I felt really angry about this poem for a long, long time. And then when I reread it, I already had the title of this poem, and the poems were, were going. They were mm. fermenting and being written. And then when I, I had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to answer this particular poem by Philip Larkin. But then when I reread it, I just couldn't believe that in the Philip Larkin poem, he talks about being shunted off your balance, knocked off your balance. So it became the perfect title poem, even yeah. though I already had the title for the book. Do you ever think, in a sense, um, if you're acting, so much of writing, I guess, is intuitive and being open to coincidences, that do you, when a coincidence like that, like that happens, do you think, I'm on the right track? Absolutely. It feels like somebody's hand is on your shoulder. Mm. I mean, the hairs just went up on the back of my neck when I reread it and saw that he had the phrase, yes. to knock you off your balance. And I think when you are in a creative zone, 
and in a productive phase and poetry is sort of happening that all kinds of coincidences and spooky yeah. spooky things happen like that. You, you read about it so often, these sort of synchronicities, yes. I guess Jung would call it, you know, where writers are forever, you know, they're researching one thing and they make something up and it turns out it actually yeah. happened or yeah. something later on confirms it. It's, it's, it's just such an odd thing. I think it is strange. You have to be that antenna, I really Yeah, don't. yeah, to go back to the media. Yes. <laughs> a very strange thing happened to me in a writer's retreat in Switzerland. Okay. <laughs> Good start uh, to story. And um, I, it was Chateau Lavigny, and I got like a fellowship there, so I could go and, and write there for um, three weeks, I think it was. And I was pregnant with my first child, so I thought I'd go, I'd go before the baby was born, because then I wouldn't be writing for ages. And I, I, I got there, and I was absolutely convinced that the room I was in was haunted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't work, I was too uncomfortable and I felt very watched and it was sort of, it was just a very creepy place. And I wrote only one poem um, and it was about the room and how gothic the room was. So I had a four poster bed with tattered hangings and shutters and every night there was thunderstorms and you know, it was like something out of an Anne Radcliffe novel. So I was writing a poem about that and on the wall were framed photographs of a little girl. And she looked a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, I assumed that it, they were photographs of the heiress who don- donated the chateau as a writer's treat because there were photographs of her all over. So I thought these were her as a little girl, but I put this, these photographs into my poem and I drew an analogy to Alice being photographed by Lewis Carroll. Mm. And uh, so I wrote the poem, finished it. It's called A Storm. It's in Through the Square Window. It's the first poem in that book. And uh, two days later I went and someone knocked on my door and one of the other writer's boyfriend had come to visit and she was saying, well, can I bring him in to your room to show him all the artwork on your walls? I said, yeah, if you want. And so she went straight up to the photographs and she said, and these are original photographs of Alice by Lewis Carroll. Oh. (laughs) Which I did not know at the time. But that was very spooky. Did you immediately just... Oh, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I just thought that's so strange that my poem knew that before I, before I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'd only used it as a as a very explicit simile, you know, as if taken by Lewis Carroll, but they were the real thing. Golly. Well, on that note. On that note, let's I'll go back to, to Laura Kent. It's a lot like, well, spooky in some ways, maybe. So this is On Balance, and it begins with um, a little quotation from Philip Larkin's poem, Born Yesterday. May you be ordinary, have, like other women, an average of talents. Not ugly, not good-looking, nothing uncustomary to pull you off your balance. In fact, may you be dull. Even fully grown, she'd be a girl to you. You rarely mention women except to stress our looks or what we cannot do, though girls persist in separate lit-up boxes, their pants pulled down or getting fucked by your luckier friend in the toilet of a train. You were the mean fairy at the christening, feigning honesty. No doubt her father slapped you on the back, admired your dazzling final turn from lack to grudging benediction. I wouldn't let you near 
my brilliant daughter. So far, in fact, from dull, that radiant, incandescent, are as shadows on the landscape after staring at the sun. Photographs often feature in your in your work. What is it about photographs that stimulates your, um, I guess, your your muse? Or... Mm. <laughs> I don't take photographs. I've no interest in being a practical photographer. Um, but I think there's. I think it's just that haunted thing you get off old photographs that. And you're looking at people who are dead and they don't know they're dead and you know they're dead. When I look at photographs, I'll just immediately start filling in their backstory and yeah. wondering what they got up to. Yeah. And, you know, there's so much around that that I find very interesting. You know, if you go back to early photography, the kind of claims to truth that it would make, mm. you know, as opposed to interpretive art. This was true. I, I think, like, the, the, the photographers that had a kind of social agenda in photographing slums or photographing aspects of experience that middle class viewers of these photographs wouldn't have had direct personal access to before. I think there is a claim that this is true and following on from that something needs to be done to change this and also the way they play with the viewers so if you photograph um, if you photograph a little alleyway slum as Robert Hogg did in Belfast and then you assemble, so the houses look like nobody could actually live in them, but then you assemble everybody who is living in them. And the camera stands in for the viewers, so you're putting a middle-class viewer directly into that street in a very immediate and perhaps shocking way. I think all of that stuff is very interesting. I also think that photographs, especially black and white ones, falsified the world so dramatically by draining the world of colour. That impressionist art of the same period, which is a blaze of colour, is more honest to that experience than black and white photography. And there's a poem in On Balance about a series of photographs I saw in colour of Russia before the revolution. Um, And the startling thing about seeing the world in colour when you don't expect to see that world in colour is that it makes it look false. Well, we're getting towards the end of the podcast, so I wanted to ask about the poem The Singing Gates. Okay. Because it's quite an autobiographical poem. Yeah, it is. It's about my family history. And you, I guess, within the context of Northern Ireland in that period, it's Mm. quite unusual because I think your granddad sort of avoided the Catholic-Protestant dichotomy because he was a communist. Yeah. Well, he didn't avoid it to start with. Right. So he was brought up in the markets area of Belfast in a very Catholic nationalist family in extreme poverty. Um, And he joined the Fianna when he was a teenager, which was the IRA scout movement. And it was banned in the... It was banned in the then Free State because it was too close to the horrors and trouble of the civil war it wasn't banned in the north so they were actively recruiting among catholic working class districts and both my grandparents my grandfather's parents were alcoholic and there was never any money in the house and he was also hungry and, and when he joined the Fianna it was like a military structure that he loved uh, for that reason and um, so they did military drills and learned how to dress wounds and they taught Irish history from a Republican perspective. So he was totally steeped in that background. 
Um, and then when he was a teenager, he was wearing an Easter lily to commemorate the rising and a Belfast policeman told him to remove it. It was illegal to wear above an, an Easter lily and he refused, so he was sent to prison for three months, which left him with a prison record as an Irish Republican activist. And during the Second World War, there was a, a widespread policy of internment in Northern Ireland. Uh, which people don't really know about or talk about. So the internment that everybody remembers and talks about is the internment of the 1970s. But he was locked up without evidence or trial um, for five years of the war. Mm. And initially he was put on a prison ship in Strandford Lock, which was so dangerous in the event of bombing. The men would have all drowned. There was no way they could have got off the ship. So... Um, the Americans protested about the prison ship and he spent the rest of the war in various prisons around Northern Ireland, mostly Cromwell Road Jail. But in Cromwell Road Jail he had access to books via the Prisoners Relief Fund and coming from the Irish Republican background, one of the people that he read was Connolly, who was one of the, the rebels in the Rising, but a socialist, the most socialist of the Rising leaders. And from reading Connolly, he then read Marx. And so he sort of converted to the cause of international socialism in prison. So he, he absented himself from all the military drills that his fellow IRA prisoners were still conducting and stayed in his cell and read and then joined the Communist Party um, and was, was so active that the Soviet Union honoured him with these various all-expenses-paid holidays for him and his family in the Soviet Union. And he worked as the Education Officer for the Transport and General Workers' Union until he was 77. Wow. Um, and I, I think that's, I think where he started and, and the kind of contours that his life took on through left-wing politics and through self-education, were kind of, they were just amazing. Mm. And he died in January last year. So this poem is my homage to him. And he loved to walk. Uh, he walked all his life, miles and miles. And my son is, is now, he's almost 11. He's nine in this poem. And he loves to walk too. And my son and I are up walking the Belfast Hills and looking down over the city. And the only other thing I need to say is my son is very dyslexic. The Singing Gates. Up on top of Divis on a freezing Saturday, we pass the singing gates. Five five-barred silver yokes across from the cafe, closed for renovation, penning nothing in but their own frustration. They keen like washerwomen into the billowing sky. You're talking Batman, Two-Fifth, Robin. You lope ahead and circle and run back, ready to walk for hours if we have time, free at last of school and all the worksheets you never managed to finish on your own. I can no longer ask my granddad exactly how his release was managed back in April 45. Five years of his young man's life wiped out for being a so-called enemy of the state in wartime, that other bout of internment no one ever mentions. And then what? Tipped out onto the pavement like a sack of damaged apples as the gates of Crumlin Road jail clanged shut behind him. 
My father says he walked to this summit the very next morning, walked to work every day thereafter, walked to think, walked for pleasure, walked to stretch each inch of his cell by laying it down over and over on the floor of the borderless world so that its chip tile cast iron rectangle could disappear. We opt for the ridge trail, a heathery zigzag that wraps the whole side of the hill in its ribbon, while the joker secedes to mummification and the death rites of ancient Egypt. You're a dark-haired flurry in a hailstorm, running on sugar and bliss, who can't tell B from D because any letter might just flick its Fred Astaire hat and dance backwards across the page if it felt like it, yet starving all the same for knowledge imbibing the French Revolution or species of cacti-like brawn and remembering everything. My granddad brought his own son here from the age of four on crippling all-day hikes on Saturdays, long before, as the Jesuits saw it, my father had the capacity for resistance to anything and told him brilliant stories. The Battle of Stalingrad, the defence of the Luding Bridge, The great only appear great because we are on our knees. Let us rise. Until the two of them fell asleep in Hatchet Field, clouds passing over their faces like zeppelins. The oil rigs you fell in love with a year ago are still moored at the shipyard's glittering edge. Storms of gunmetal grey touched down precisely in far-off tinker-toy villages, though for now we're walking in sunshine, welcome as any downpour after a drought, as you list the typical contents of a sarcophagus and detail the risk of double jeopardy in the hall of two truths. Did you bring joy? Did you find joy? Horace skulking, hawk-eyed in the background. For most of my father's childhood, his father must have looked like the man in the black and white photograph I keep sequestered in a notebook. A guest of honour in the Soviet Union turned Italian in the Black Sea sunshine, his hallmark Donegal suit dramatically cut, skinny like you and even more electric a honey magnet, and he knew it, for secretaries, receptionists, stray-passing female fellow revolutionaries in that dim hermetic time-lock called Transport House, with its tea trolleys, telephone exchanges, ashtrays standing guard along corridors like Russian babushkas in apartment blocks. We can pick out its derelict white, black and turquoise, Belfast's only example of socialist realist architecture from the rest of the city centre's humdrum colours. Do you want to ask me a question, Mummy? By far your favourite question. As we come up at last by our circuitous route to the granite triangulation point where, three months earlier, my granddad's children and their children and their children took turns with the kitchen scoop to launch what was left of him into the air. He'd made himself so small in the previous months, perhaps out of courtesy, it hadn't been hard. And I want to ask you about the gates we're on our way back to. What wind caught where? In what cavity? Why this particular calibre of sound unravelling only here? Are they in harmony? 
Are they a choir? Are they, in fact, the singing ticket to the afterlife? And how might we post ourselves into it, limb by limb? What scarab, what amulet, what feather, what scale, what spell? And that is the end of this podcast, barring a final poem by Sinead, which we'll hear in a moment after I express my gratitude to various people. So, first up, many thanks to Sinead Morrissey, obviously, for stopping by. Thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in. And thanks to Will Campbell, who wrote and recorded the podcast theme for Tuning Up. If you enjoyed the show and want to know uh, more about what the SPL is doing between episodes, you can always visit our website, uh, which can be found at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. We also um, manifest ourselves on various social media platforms. Uh, so we do Twitter. Twitter. Our Twitter tag is at by leaves we live we have a facebook page spl scotland i think and instagram which is also i think spl scotland if you like pictures of new poetry titles old poetry titles new poets old poets check out our instagram as uh, i'm publishing this podcast on national poetry day i should mention as well that um we have produced six um poem cards which illustrate NPD 2017's theme of freedom. They're fantastic. You can look at them on our website and if you want to get some copies of that, pop into the SPL itself. You can take as many as you like for free and I believe they're also available from libraries throughout Scotland. So that brings me to the very, very end of the podcast. Uh, It only um, stands for me to say here is one last poem by Sinead. From the Book of Knowledge of Ingenious Mechanical Devices. Just as the world to Al-Jazari was a wonder of Tawhid, all visible things the uber-florid signature of God, so is his book a wonder of understanding of what can be borne up and what will topple, given gravity, air pressure, time, which is itself encased in stunning script. Bicol poured into a single shell or glass receptacle. Inventor of such leaps in engineering as the camshaft, crankshaft, throttling valve, the calibration of orifices and the balancing of static wheels. Theophanies that awed all Anatolia upon which are modern day buoyancy depends. He was also fanciful, elaborate, absurd, who made water issue from the fountainhead in the shape of a shield or like a lily of the valley. Flick open his pages and listen to the clicking of dismantled humanoid automata reconstructing themselves from the bottom up then stepping back from the task accomplished. A towel proffered, a wine cup filled, the victim of phlebotomy distracted. Close over the flyleaf and watch what fades. Enamel the colour of a peacock feather, roundels, falcons, anklets, diadems, bells. Fripperies of fine technology 
He stacked in Saladin's palace workshop solely for themselves, which is like waking slowly of your own accord, the dream world oddly tilted at your feet for ages, for a year, until it almost vanishes, leaving the ghosted impress of its ardour still folded in the bedclothes. Visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.